Turn to Romans chapter 5, please. Last week I had a premature word of knowledge. Mrs. Vicki Durst's birthday is today. All right, there she is. Give her a warm, warm welcome to the 30s. Because I've known you since we were like eight, right? Another veteran all the way from 78, right? 78. You and George Washington, I'll tell you. Yes, that's true. We always speak the truth in love. John said he thinks George is older than you, but I just want to get him in trouble. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. This is how I warm up. I'm sorry. I'm going to be speaking tonight and maybe a couple other times on on a question within a question. Please bear in mind that the question that we began this series, Better Call Paul, was... And I want to keep this before my eyes, too, so they don't get too complicated. Does Paul's entire corpus of epistles, which Second Peter 3.15 says all of Paul's epistles taken together, present an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ in his all-saving significance, in his all-redemptive significance? We've seen that, in fact, the book of Revelation does this, and that at the very heart and center of the apocalypse of John, both John in his gospel and John in his apocalypse presents a lamb who has a universal saving impact, a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we have seen, and I hope you'll note these verses in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul also says much more subtly, much more obliquely referring to the lamb as he does in Romans 3.25 also, 3.26. He says, our paschal lamb has been slain. Our paschal lamb has been killed. And at the heart of Revelation, Revelation 5, John is told, look and see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks and he sees a lamb that had been slaughtered, but is now standing And that word lamb goes times 28 through the book of Revelation. And we know that four times seven, 28, four times the spirit or the seven spirits of God is mentioned in four critical places in Revelation, equaling 28. And so the Revelation involves, as I'm going to be also writing pretty pretty soon on it, a vision that is a wheel within a wheel, like Ezekiel one sixteen. In the inner wheel, there is that revelation of the destruction of Babylon the Great, which was about to happen at the time of John's writing, and how that would impact churches in Anatolia, or otherwise known as Asia Minor, otherwise known as modern Turkey. And the greater, however, circle that embodies that circle is a circle of the restoration of all things, the making of all things new in Revelation 21.5. So the question is being answered piece by piece, here a little, there a little, all the way through our teaching. Is or are Paul's epistles taken together as a corpus of disclosure, presenting to us a vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. If so, this is providing for us in a symbolic way a clear view of the ark as Joshua 3 represents it. And I recommend that you read that chapter, Joshua 3, see what kind of things the Spirit makes pop for you in that passage, see how it applies to what I've been teaching on the vision. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we have this translation. If you remember, we fired an arrow from Romans 3, 12, asking the question, when did all at the same time and altogether turn aside from God or turn away from God who gave mankind existence? When did that happen? And we shot an arrow from there, from Romans 3, 12 to 5, 12, and skipped over some territory that we'll be taking up. But notice, this is the translation I have so far for Romans 5.12 and following. Because of this, just as by one man in in whom all sinned, and I've changed that around a little bit, the phrases need to be changed for the sense, as Nehemiah 8.8 would have it, as the sense is conveyed of this passage, 
I've translated it this way. Because of this, just as by one man in whom all have sinned, that explains when and how all turned away at the same time in Adam's sin. Sin entered into the world, and through sin, death. Sin and death are the two primary suprahuman powers that enslave the creation in general, humanity in particular. Sin entered the world, and through sin, death. And in this way, death passed into the whole human race. Verse 13, for sin was in the world before the law, before Torah. But sin is not charged to one's account when there is no law. Paul had earlier said, by the law, there is a consciousness or an awareness of sin. When there is no law, there's no awareness of sin. So there's no charge as it, as it is against those who sin. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned as king. Please note the reigning or ruling power that death is from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a prototype of the coming one. That's Messiah Jesus, the second man, the man from heaven, the last Adam, as he calls him in 1 Corinthians 15. There is a connection between Romans 5 and Rome and 1 Corinthians 15, as we've seen. Verse 15, but the transgression, meaning the single transgression, a single act of Adam, which was a violation of a direct divine command, is not like, that means it's all out of proportion to the free gift. Paul likes to use this in Romans 18. He said, I consider that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall follow. He's saying here that the transgression of Adam is not worthy to be compared proportion-wise to the free gift. It's all out of proportion to the free gift. For as through one man's transgression, the many, hoi polloi, as we've seen, which is equivalent to all, the many died. And that means all, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two and other places, as in Adam, all die. Why? Because in Adam, all sinned when Adam sinned. Therefore, all turned away from the God who gave them existence at the same time and altogether when Adam sinned. So we start to think, does that mean that all turned back when Christ was obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion? We're going to start to see in our foray into Romans chapter 6 a tremendous leap in our understanding of the post-regeneration living that is in Christ Jesus, called the newness of life, as we'll see. So the transgression in verse 15 is all out of proportion to the free gift. That's an unconditional gift, incidentally, free. For as through the one man's transgression, the many, that's all, died, much more, we could say much more so, the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. The grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, is similar to the statement or the phrase, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus Christ. is By his faithfulness he gave himself for me, as Paul said. Nevertheless, death reigned as king from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a prototype of the coming one. But the transgression of Adam, that is, is all out of proportion to the free gift. For as through the one man's transgression, the many, or all, died, much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. Tus palus, again, signaling the word all. But the trans, so again, this verse 15 is extremely important. That transgression committed by Adam is not like the gift bestowed, which overflowed to all. Verse 16, and the free gift, once again, that free is unconditional, is not like the one man's sin. I mean, it's all out of proportion to it. Because from the one man's sin came judgment unto condemnation. But the gift bestowed came after many transgressions 
and brought acquittal, or we could say deliverance. We're going to show there's eight or nine different ways of showing in Romans and the Psalms and throughout the scriptures that the righteousness of God is actually the deliverance of God, God's saving act in Christ, that it intentionally means that. You don't get it by looking it up in a concordance. That's the danger. You can't just exegete the scriptures by looking up every word in a concordance because the usage of a word is determined by the context and by seven or eight different ways of approach, the righteousness of God, which is the theme center of Romans, is his saving act in Christ Jesus, his unconditional saving act in Christ Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because in it, Paul says, or by means of it, the divine deliverance or the deliverance of God, the righteousness of God, meaning the saving act, the unconditional saving act of God in Christ is being apocalyptically revealed from faithfulness. That's God's faithfulness that continues or manifests itself in Christ, the Messiah to faithfulness, which is the faithfulness of Christ that continues in the church. And this is where what's your story comes in. What's your story? Is your story the history of Adam or is your story the history of Christ? Whose history do you share? Whose story is yours? It's one or the other. And you have to decide in your own way what is your story. Verse 17, for since by the one transgression, death ruled through the one man, Adam. Much more will those who receive the surplus of grace and the free gift of deliverance reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, accordingly, just as it was through one man's transgression that condemnation came to all human beings, so through the one man's righteous saving act came the deliverance, which is life for all human beings. The deliverance, which is life for all human beings. For just as through the disobedience, now we have another phrase, the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam's disobedience, the many Again, the many and the all are interchangeable here. We're constituted as sinners, hamartoloi. So also by the obedience of the one, the many, again, that's interchangeable with all, are reconstituted as righteous or better, rightly delivered, delivered through an act of God's grace in the sense of being the objects of the divine king's rescue mission. And so God is right to exercise this unconditional saving act toward his people and toward his domain, his people, all people, his domain, all creation. God is right to act in this way. And so again, Paul then comes to a dramatic conclusion in Romans 5:20 20 to 21, a dramatic conclusion, just as he did in Romans 3:19 to 20 in which he finally took down the citadel, the main fortress of the false teacher, the teacher that has another gospel. When Paul completed that, he climactically did so in Romans 3, 19, 20. Now he moves from Christological soteriology, or a Christ-centered salvation, to a pneumatological ethics, an ethics that is realized in the mission of the Holy Spirit, even as the salvation was realized in the mission of the Son, a Christian ethic is realized only in the power of the Spirit, and that's where Paul's going now. So he says, verse 20, and this is important, the law slipped in through a side door, he said. Sin's already in the world. Sin is reigning. Death is reigning. And the law slipped in through a side door. Paul deliberately sidelines the law or the Torah here, not Jesus Christ. The teacher whom he is defeating here in a contradictory dialectic or a dialectic of contradictories that teacher has sidelined Jesus Christ 
And it's as if Jesus Christ came in through a side door, but the law came in through a side door. Paul sidelines the law, not Jesus Christ. To make sin increase. Now, that's a slap in the face. The law came in through a side door to make sin in the human race increase. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that just as sin that is, as a supra-human enslaving power, reigned with death as a supra-human enslaving power. So now grace, a divine power, reigns by God's righteous saving act in Christ into the life that abides through the ages through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is a shocking conclusion. The gospel, as preached by Paul, is rooted in the narrative, or we could say the history, or for our purposes, the story of Jesus. The gospel of Paul, as he preached it, is rooted in the narrative, or the history, or the story of Jesus, God's Messiah and Son, a descendant of David. The gospel, as Paul preached it, is the proclamation of a full-scale D-Day invasion. That's divine invasion. Into the evil age by means of two divine missions. In order to liberate humanity and all of creation from the supra-human powers of sin and death. It's important to know that these are supra-human. That means that humans are enslaved to them and incapable of extracting themselves or freeing themselves from that enslavement. So something has to intervene. Someone has to intervene. A liberating, transformative act, a divine act, has to intervene. As Jesus said in Luke 11, that a strong man holds on to his property and on to his weaponry and on to his estate as long as he's strong, until a stronger man comes in and spoils that person. And so the strong man here is sin and death and also Satan and the principalities and powers, the strong man that hold their property, humanity, in their grip until a stronger man comes and spoils that man's property or steals that man's property or overcomes him. The stronger man is the man Christ Jesus. So once again, Paul's gospel is about a full-scale divine invasion into the evil age. And just as D-Day, Normandy, broke the back of the Axis powers, and yet there was still a lot of fighting and mop-up to go on afterwards until total victory, so it is with the divine invasion into history in the saving act of God in Christ. There's still a lot of fighting going on. We still have to be take up and put on the full armor of God and stand until we have accomplished the will of God and having accomplished that will still to stand. And that's Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, otherwise known as the letter to Laodicea, as you know, and I don't have to repeat. So the gospel is about a divine invasion into the evil age by means of two divine missions in order to liberate humanity and all of creation from the suprahuman powers of sin and death and also particularly for humanity to liberate from the flesh or the Adamic ontology or that which Paul calls later on paleo man, palaios anthropos, paleo man, man in Adam, Adamic ontology. We need to also be liberated from that supra-human power called sarks or the flesh or the Adamic ontology, which we will begin to call paleo-man. And evil principalities and powers also, which from which we are delivered. The teacher's gospel, which Paul has pretty much defeated by Romans 3.20, is a nomistic gospel. Nomistic meaning a law-based gospel based on nomos, the law. The teacher's gospel is a nomistic gospel. He preaches the possibility of salvation through obedience to the Torah's stipulations. 
rather than through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, may it never be. Meganoito, which is a phrase he uses 14 times in his epistolary corpus. Meganoito, which has many translations. Absolutely not is a pretty good one for our time. Absolutely not. May it absolutely not ever be that I should ever boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which I have been crucified to the world and the world to me, Paul said. The teacher's gospel doesn't boast in the cross. It boasts in man's performance in obedience to Torah following circumcision. So from here, Paul launches from Christological soteriology, if you want to get a theology class in, from Christological soteriology, or a salvation that's all wrapped up in Jesus, to a pneumatological ethics, or an ethical life, that is all about the power of the Holy Spirit and not about the energy of the flesh, which he tackles really from Romans 6.1 all the way to 8.13. So from here, Paul launches, and this is again, this is a, a foray into territory that we'll take on more in earnest in the future. But from here, Paul launches from this Christocentric salvation to a pneumocentric or a Holy Spirit-centered ethics where he also refutes the charge against Paul's apocalyptic gospel, that all of this unconditional saving grace amounts to the conclusion, let's go out and do evil then, that good may come. That might work if your story is Adam's story. It doesn't work if your story is Christ's story, if you're incorporated into his downward trajectory and his upward trajectory. That's what he's going into in the next chapters. So the conclusion of Romans 5.21, that salvation comes through the sheer and unconditional grace of God, led to the charge that Paul is refuting here, the charge that is saying, so let's go do evil that good may come. He mentions this in Romans 3.8, but then addresses it again in Romans 6.1 as should we go out and continue or persist industriously even in sinning so that grace may abound? And then he says, Meganoito, Meganoito. And we'll make some hay out of that if we can. Since the sun of righteousness is shining, we'll make some hay. Now, this is not too dissimilar to the all too familiar charge that you hear from people without any understanding that grace or the gospel of the grace of God provides a license to sin. You've heard that a thousand times, maybe. I have. Now, here's a place for clarification, however. The way that the so-called once saved, always saved, let's stop right here and sit on our haunches, people teach it. And their little slogan is once saved, always saved. The way that this has been presented by the once saved, always saved, but let's stop right here, gospel, is sometimes presented, the way it's presented implies this. It really doesn't matter what I do after I'm saved. I'm going to heaven anyway. That reasoning and that rationale does provide a license to sin because it's not the biblical understanding at all. It's not Paul's gospel at all. It's tragically and slanderously unfortunate that this has been how the justification by faith crowd has presented this thing. They don't have anything to say about a post-salvation or post. You can't ever say post-salvation. The question after salvation, what is not a good question. Because there's nothing after salvation. Salvation is an eternal event. It's an everlasting event. There is something we could call post-regeneration. After being incorporated into Christ, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, there is a life and an ethic that is required of Christians. So the way that the so-called once saved, always saved gospel is sometimes presented implies that it really doesn't matter what I do after I'm saved. I'm going to heaven anyway. To say this in this way, with that suggestiveness, is in fact to incentivize sinfulness, or at least to provide no incentive for a positive post-regeneration ethic. 
which is very important to Paul and apparently to God. And so I want to clarify that, and I think it should be clarified because that's a superficial message at, the, at best. But just because the gospel is not a contract, and it isn't, it's rather a covenant. It's an unconditional covenant, not a bilateral contract. But just because the gospel is a unilateral covenant does not mean that there are not obligations to God on the human side in the post-regeneration life, if that term may be used, post-regeneration, because post-salvation is a poor choice of words. In reality, we're never in a post-salvation state once we are in Christ. So better post-regeneration life until we get something better than that. No condition, repeat, no condition needs to be met by human beings for salvation in the unilateral covenant of God. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth, which is unilateral covenant fidelity, came with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ brought the unilateral covenant fidelity of God to the human race and demonstrated it by obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, we have all received from his fullness even grace after grace. There's grace for salvation. There's grace for ethics. And I'm using that word ethics as a general term. No condition needs to be met by human beings for salvation in the unilateral covenant of God. But the covenant is not without obligations on the part of the rescued and redeemed. There's an obligation to live lives that glorify God in this world and in this body in 1 Corinthians 6.20. In fact, the grace of God teaches us this. Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, colon, salvation for everybody, salvation for all humankind. Teaching us, though, teaching us, those that are in Christ, to deny all ungodliness and to live soberly and righteously and piously in the right way in this age, looking for, with great anticipation, that blessed realization of our hope, the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, gave, who loved us and gave himself for us that he might purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works, not for sinning, Titus 2, 11 to 14. So Paul is entering into an ethical arena here. In Romans 6, Paul not only replies to the slanderous accusation that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, signals this slogan, let's continue in sin so that grace might increase. Paul is replying against that. As grace abounds more than sin, sin increases by the law, but God's grace increases more than sin. And so that, says the accuser, occasions the slogan, so, and the conclusion, so, let's go continue to sin, or let's go do evil that good may come. Let's go continue in sin so that grace may abound. Paul replies against this. Paul emphatically states that such a thing is a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. It does not follow that if grace abounds much more than when sin abounds, it does not follow. Well, then let's go out and produce more sins so that more grace will come. That is a non sequitur. It is not. It doesn't follow. Where sin abounded, God's grace abounded even more, is not logically or reasonably followed by, so let's continue in sin to make more grace or good come. This conclusion is five things, as we mentioned last week. It's inattentive, unintelligent, unreasonable, irresponsible, and unloving in every possible way. And so, in fact, Paul, at this very point, And as an answer to this accusation, gives an account of an efficacious ethics, one that could not be realized by any nomistic gospel. This ethics is the result of participation in Christ, a fellowship with Christ, 
and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, and to redeem us from the curse of the law. And also God sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So Paul proclaims a Christological salvation and a pneumatological ethics, both of which are grace, because the Spirit himself is called the Spirit of grace. So don't worry, just because there's a little exhortation, don't be afraid of it. We're still all about the grace of God. So this ethics that Paul is talking about is a result of participation in Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit. It directly springs from the two divine missions. In fact, it directly springs from the believer's participation in those two divine missions in history. The mission of the Son continues, and it's extended into the mission of the Spirit. The mission of the Spirit continues. That's why Paul says his main ethical command is walk in the Spirit. Walk is an ethical metaphor. It's used by Paul. It was used by the rabbis. It's used by the Pharisees. It's used by the Jewish teachers of Paul's time and before Paul's time. It is a metaphor for ethics to conduct your lives in a certain way. And so, at this very point, Paul is answering this accusation. The ethics that he proclaims is a result of participation in Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of grace. The gospel, as Paul proclaims it, is a Christological salvation. It also includes a pneumatological ethic. And as we've seen, the teacher's gospel, so-called gospel, it's not really a gospel at all because it's not good news. He sidelines Jesus, the, the Messiah, is terms, in terms of salvation. And he sidelines the Holy Spirit in terms of ethics. Two great disasters in the teacher's gospel. The teacher's gospel barely recognizes the two divine missions. He's aware of them, but he's not aware of their impact and importance. Say nothing of proclaiming their profound importance. Paul's gospel shows the supreme salience of Jesus in salvation and the supreme salience or prominence of the spirit in ethics, that which might be called ethics in the post-regeneration life. It is God's will. By God's will, we have been begotten to become a kind of first fruits of his creation or his new creation. It's God's will, not your will. You were not born by the will of man. You were born by the will of God. The will involved in your birth, your new birth, is the will of God, not your will. Now, once rescued by God's salvific act in Christ and placed in Christ, incorporated into Christ, and once one is in Christ, he or she is not left alone to try and be good or to live any old way you wish, it doesn't matter, which is the superficial, and they use the, the slogan, once saved, always say, but that's as far as it goes. There's no post-regeneration encouragement, and so you're really left with, it is a license to sin. It is a license to sin, if it's represented that way. That's not Paul's gospel. Now, certainly in Paul's gospel, you have been saved by grace. And I remember all the way, in fact, I looked at it again, Kenneth Wiest, who I studied way back in the 70s, he said that that means in the tenses that by grace are you saved means by grace you have been saved with a salvation that persists on through the present and will persist on forever and ever. That's right. So we are once saved, always saved. But there's no connection from that point to an ethical efficacy afterwards. And so that's the problem. It, people don't just keep moving. They don't keep learning. They don't continue in the word. They don't continue in grace. They don't continue. And therefore, they're left. We're always going to be moving, at least as long as I'm alive in this church. We're always going to be moving forward. So... The ongoing experience of divine deliverance includes a divinely empowered ethics, a Christian ethic which is not dependent on nomistic obedience 
or observance of the letter of the law, but what we can call a walk in the spirit as Galatians 5.16, as Romans 8.4 says it, and as many other passages. Once again, this is integrally related to our participation in the fidelity and love of Jesus Christ. Instead of fully developing the doctrine now, I'm not going to do that. We're going to engage the text. Let's see what the text says. Not what a theologian says, not what a scholar says. Instead of just developing the doctrine of the Christian ethic or ethics, let's be advised to go to Romans 6.1. Let's translate it. What are we to say then, Paul says? In other words, what is an appropriate slogan? What would be an appropriate slogan? Let's persist in sin. Persist there means a kind of an assiduous or enthusiastic pursuit of sin. If grace abounds where sin abounds, let's keep sinning, sin will abound. But that's the, the point of this is this. If your story is human history in Adam, that might work. But your story is the history of Jesus Christ who died to sin when he died, as we're going to see in Romans 6, 7 and Romans 8, 34. He that died is freed from sin, is speaking specifically of Jesus Christ. Just as the righteous one shall live by his fidelity, speaks of Jesus Christ. This cuts across the grain of the justification by faith theory, which is a contractual rendition of the gospel, and I think a false one. I think a fatally flawed one. And that's what I think the Holy Spirit's doing in our time is liberating us not only from sin and death, but from false gospel, and a very subtly one. You know, I I said years ago that we're going to be uncovering some hidden idols. Who knew that the most hidden but devious idol in Western culture is the gospel of justification by personal faith rather than deliverance by the faithfulness of Messiah? Who knew that that would be the hidden idol itself? Who knew? I didn't know. So does that make you have a lot of friends in churches? I don't know. Maybe. The Holy Spirit's teaching this to individuals, to pastors, to teachers, to theologians and churches in a lot of places right now, incidentally. It's just because the Holy Spirit's doing it. That's why. So you're not left alone to live any old way you wish or to try to live up to God's expectations. Indeed, the scripture says God is always with us in Isaiah 41.10, John 14.16-17, Hebrews 13.5-6. He's always in us also and willing and doing in us the things that are to his own good pleasure in Philippians 2.13. So there's, there is an acceptable ethic or ethics, if you want to say it that way, for the redeemed of the Lord, for the company of people who are in Christ and who know it. So again, what are we to say then? What are we going to conclude if God's grace is reigning through an act of deliverance and wherever sin abounded, grace more abounded? What are we to say? Let's persist in sin. That means under the power of sin in order that grace would increase? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin? Our story isn't Adam's story. Our story is Christ's story, and we have been incorporated into his story so that we can say, I was crucified with Christ. When he died to sin, I died to sin. When he arose from the dead, when he was buried, I was buried with him in an incorporation into him, which is used as a baptismal metaphor. There's not a lot of water in Romans 6. It's a dry thing. It's a baptism by the Spirit. We were baptized into his death. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? So here's my question. Does the actual historical fact that God's grace superabounded when man's sinfulness abounded offer the rationale? Does that lead to the rationale, reasonably, that now that we are unconditionally rescued by the superabounding grace, we can assiduously, in fact, we should persist in sinfulness, expecting God's grace to superabound in answer to our sinning. Of course not. Of course not. 
Me genoito. Times 14 in Paul's epistles. Me. G-E-N-O-I-T-O. Me genoito. Exclamation point. Upside down exclamation point. Right side up exclamation point. Me genoito. Again, he uses this 14 times in all of his epistles, 10 times in Romans alone. He uses that. Absolutely not. He uses it once in 1 Corinthians 6.15, three times in Galatians. It's an emphatic negation. Can't get any stronger than that negation. Translated variously. I looked at a few translations today. The Bible in basic English says, in no way. The Christian Jewish Bible says, heaven forbid. My still favorite Holman Christian Standard Bible says, absolutely not. I went with that one. By no means, says the ESV, the NIV, the RSV, and the NRSV. That's unthinkable, says God's word to the nations. That's Pauletta's favorite. May it never be, says the New American Standard Bible. Out of the question, says the New Jerusalem Bible. Certainly not, says the New King James, replacing the old God forbid of the King James. And I even looked up my famous... French Bible, after the Young's literal translation, let it not be, the French, I like to keep a little sharp in French, certainement pas, certainly not, certainement pas, that's the Bible in French. This would be to undermine the very saving act of God in Christ and to become the enemy of the cross of Christ. So, the actual historical fact, this is where we're getting into some new territory, and some pioneer territory. This is where the sword of the word is cutting a path forward. The actual historical fact that God's grace superabounded in history when man's sinfulness abounded because of the entrance of the law especially contrasts with the fact that we have become incorporated into the history of Jesus Christ who died to sin in Romans 6, 7, and was made alive again from the dead, freed from sin and its power to live unto God or to live to God. So here's the question. What's your story? Is your story the replication of Adam's history and man's history in Adam, the paleo man? Or is your history now incorporated into the story of Jesus that you died to sin. If we died to sin, and we did, how can we continue any longer therein if we're dead to it? We died to it in Christ when he died to it. I'm going to have to say this many different ways for it to come into your mind. I don't want you to be ignorant about it. Is yours the story that reflects the history of the first man earthly Adam and the human race in him a story of increasing sinfulness that required the superabundance of grace or is your story the story of the second man the one from heaven who descended from heaven lived a life of vicarious obedience in behalf of you and me to the extent of death died and in dying died to sin. He became sin for us. He died to sin. And in dying, died to sin, was buried and raised again, alive to God. I'll answer the question. Your story is Christ's own story. How can we continue in sin if we're no longer in Adam, but in Christ who died to sin? This is an anticipation of the argument put forward by Paul in Romans 6. In Romans 6, 1, all the way through 8, 13, he's dealing with ethics rather than salvation per se. But as salvation has been shown to be by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, now ethics is seen to be the, by the power of the Spirit of Christ, whom we received from the Father and the Son. As John fourteen sixteen to 17 says, and as Galatians 4, 6 says, ethics in Christ is pneumatological. Remember, we did a study in pneumatology. It's pneumatological. It's a matter of the spirit. 
The spirit who was given to us and whom we received pours out the love of God in our hearts. The spirit-powered love is the basis for a Christocentric ethic in which Christ is living in us, in the Christian, the person in Christ, and the spirit at the same time is continually delivering the Christian from the enslavement of the Adamic ontology, the old self, what Paul called the paleo man, not the paleo diet, the paleo man, palaios, anthropos, the old man. We're going to meet him in a little while, only to put him off. It's not a polite thing to ignore people, but you can ignore the old paleo man. He's passe, obsolete, decrepit, useless, gone. He wasn't gone in 60 seconds. He was gone in a split second when he was put off at the cross. And so the spirit is continually delivering the Christian from the enslavement of the Adamic ontology, the old self, the old man, Palaisanthropos, paleo man, and consistently producing in the dependent Christian the fruit of the spirit, which again is love and which is also the fulfillment of the ethical command intent of Torah. Torah comes down to this. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, Israel. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. As Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. And as he put it in Mark 29 to 31. That which the law required as a command intent cannot be fulfilled by the law, but by the spirit and by and in the Christian who walks by means of the spirit, as you know, I think. So since all of this is true, How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Romans 6.3, listen to this. Or are you ignorant of the fact that as many as have been baptizo, I would say incorporated, using baptism as a metaphor, you were incorporated into Christ by the Spirit, not by the act of ritual water baptism. By one spirit, you were all baptized into Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, bond or free, barbarian or Scythian, pagan or Jew. You were baptized by one spirit. So Paul is saying this, or are you ignorant of the fact that as many as have been incorporated, he's kind of still teaching He's got the teacher in mind here and some of his students, too. Are you ignorant of the fact that as many as have been incorporated into Messiah Jesus have been baptized into his death? What are we saying? We're saying that we have been incorporated into Christ's death. We have been incorporated by the Spirit into his downward trajectory. He descends from heaven. No man has ever ascended to heaven, but he who first descended, the Son of Man, who was then lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And so this one who descended, we have been incorporated into him. Those of you that have been incorporated into Christ have been incorporated into his death. His death is your death. His death was a death to sin. Your death was a death to sin. How can you that died to sin live any longer in the sin that you died to? Doesn't make sense. If your story is the story of Jesus, I was crucified with Christ. Now, he that died, again, in Romans 6, 7, this is a a warning for what's coming. He that died in Romans 6, 7, who is he that died? He that died is freed from sin. Who is that he? Well, it's the person in Christ who believed in him. He died. No, it is not. It is Christ himself. I'll tell you why. In Romans eight thirty four, who is going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is Christ that died. Christ is the one that died. The same word is used for Christ in Romans eight thirty four as in Romans six seven. So, who is the one that died and is therefore freed from sin? The one that died is Jesus Christ. Does that mean he was sinful? No, it means that he died to sin to free us from its enslavement. And we died with him. So Paul uses another formula to use this quite often. It's a disclosure formula 
in which he, well, let's just say it politely, he augments a deficit of our understanding. Are you ignorant of the fact that as many as have been incorporated into Messiah Jesus have been baptized or incorporated into his death? So what I said at the beginning, I'll say at the end as we close. We have been incorporated into the history or better, the story of Messiah. What's your story? My story is Messiah's story. His history is our history. His story is our story. We have been incorporated by the Spirit into the downward trajectory of the Son who was sent into this world. So that's why it goes on to say, just a hint of things to come in verse 4, therefore we were buried with him through the baptism into his death. In order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too, that means having been raised together with him, may walk, walk, walk in newness of life. Newness of life. Paul uses this walk metaphor. So what have we got so far in Romans 6? One will close. One to four. What are we to say then? What's an appropriate slogan? Let's persist in sin. That is under the power of sin. In order that grace would increase? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you ignorant of the fact that as many as have been incorporated into Messiah, Jesus, have been incorporated into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism or incorporation into his death, the downward trajectory, which continued in burial, in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too, having been raised together with him, may walk in newness of life. There is a walk in newness of life. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And it isn't do whatever you want, you're going to heaven anyways. That is not only stupid, it's irrational. And it also says that your history is the history of paleo man rather than the man Christ Jesus. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity to receive a little bit of exhortation along with a little bit of theology and doctrine. And we pray that by the same Holy Spirit who inspired the words of Paul, that same Holy Spirit will illuminate those words to our hearts, which will yield a fruitful post-regeneration living, a life marked by freedom, liberation, transformation, and by love that is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We ask these things with confidence that you'll do them, as you will and do in us. And we pray it in Christ's name.